I was uh, 1968, 69. My second, third grade teacher, Dorothy Conroy. Dorothy Conroy was an incredible teacher. She really was. She loved us kids. I was, believe it or not, I was a really jerky kid. Uh, I know you're thinking, well, you're, nothing's changed. Either. Well, uh, I was a really jerky kid. And uh, somehow, though, she still loved us. She loved me. I remember one day we were at Alexander Fleming School, grade school, Chicago. We lined out outside our mobile. This was, uh, we had two big trailer homes that were kind of put together and hollowed out. That was our classroom. Uh, Mrs. Conroy would come lead us in. It was right after Christmas break. And we walked in the classroom. And there on Pedro's desk was this huge present. And, and Pedro sat down. He was, and all the kids gathered around it. And I kind of, I, I stood off to the side, went back by my desk, and I just kind of looked at this thing. Everyone was kind of wondering, how did this get in there? What was this about? Where did this come from? So I'm looking at this. I'm looking at what's going on with Pedro, and I'm looking over at Mrs. Conroy. And she's up front standing, smiling ear to ear. I'm looking at these guys. I'm going, I think I know where this came from. Now, Pedro was one of these guys that was on the other side of the, the tracks. Pedro was... Uh, uh, very dirty, smelly, uh, very tough background. He had had polio. He walked, walked with the limp. And myself, like the rest of the uh, students, unfortunately mocked Pedro. But at that moment, when I just stood back and I watched Mrs. Conroy, and I watched what she'd done to Pedro, it was an epiphany moment for me. I realized what love was when I saw it in place. And really, my perspective, I wasn't completely sanctified on this one, but, but my perspective toward Pedro shifted massively. You know, I, I, that was 68, 69, 2005. I mean, Mrs. Conroy had imprinted my heart in a major way. I figure I'm going to give her a call. So I call up Alexander Fleming School. I'm looking for Mrs. Dorothy Conroy. Of course, no one had ever heard of her. You know, she was gone. All the people had gone. I, different thing. But, but somebody, the lady comes back to the phone and she says, well, there's somebody here who thinks that there's a Dorothy Conroy at the Chicago Board of Education downtown. I said, well, thank you very much. So I call the Chicago Board of Education downtown. I talked to the receptionist. I said, I'd like to speak with Mrs. Dorothy Conroy, please. And she says, certainly. And connects. My heart starts beating. I mean, I had a crush on Mrs. Conroy. I'm like, oh, man. Wow. All right. And she picks up the phone. And as soon as she started talking, I know this is it. This is her. I said, Mrs. Conroy, you're not going to remember me, but you had me as a student back in 68. And she said, well, what's your name? I said, Mark Harris. And she said, oh, Mark, of course I remember you. And Earl Abercrombie and David Sears and Joyce Kearns. And she's naming all my friends. And this is amazing. We had this great conversation and talk. I tell her about, told her about the Pedro incident. She's laughing. And I said, you know, you taught me an awful lot about math and reading. But you taught me something that day that has stuck with me an awful long time. And I just wanted to say thank you. Have you ever had Mrs. Conroy type people in your life spiritually? You know, folk who just by who they were. Just by their investment in you, you saw in them, modeled, what you were supposed to be. They didn't have to preach anything. You saw it and and, and you were changed. Amazing. Amazing thing. Now, we're going to look, because we're talking about glow in the dark, right? I still got my glow stick. I've got people who are calling this week saying, hey, you know, I'm emailing this week. My glow stick is still active. What does that mean? I don't know. It's a good sign. It's a good sign, Errol. But this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at somebody who glowed in the dark in the New Testament. 
uh, in amaze, with amazing intensity. I would say this is not your, your one watt pen light bulb. We're talking those lights that light up Heinz Field. You know, we're talking this person glowed in the dark. And the hope is if we could just watch how this person did it, then just by watching them, we can be changed. Our intensity can, can climb. Our brightness might, might intensify a little bit as we glow in the dark around us. Now, if I was to ask you who is the most influential person in the New Testament, mine is Jesus. Okay, because Jesus wins every competition he's in. So you've got to exclude Jesus. But, but other than Jesus, most influential person in the New Testament, what names might you give? You might give the name Luke, right? The only Gentile author of the New Testament wrote more scripture than, than any other more words than any other person in the New Testament told us a lot about Jesus more than anybody else. Yeah, Luke. Luke's name's going to be up there. You might say, well, Peter, you know, Jesus, when he was looking for someone to take over, he chose Peter. So I'm throwing my, my head in with Jesus' vote. I'm thinking Peter was the most influential guy. Yeah, Peter would be in the conversation. And the Apostle Paul, probably his name would be in there, wouldn't it? Rhino Hyde Paul, who took the gospel to Europe. You know, they tell us that if Paul would have went the other way into the east... Most of us today, since looking at most of us, we probably have European descent in this room mostly. We would be Muslim today. Uh, it's projection, but it's interesting. Uh, so yeah, Paul's name, 13 of the 14 Gospels in the New Testament, maybe. Paul's name would be in the list. But I want to propose somebody different this morning. More influential than any of those guys. This guy's name was Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. And here's the deal. Joseph glowed with such incredible intensity. And you and I, anybody in this room who's seeking to follow Jesus, can glow with the same intensity that Joseph did. Because his glowing was not dependent on a spiritual gift. You ever think this sometimes? If I was just gifted like that, then I could really do something. His glowing was not dependent on a personality. If I was just more extroverted, you know, or education, or deep pockets, or, or any of those things. His, his glowing was directly dependent on, on a decision that he made, a decision that everybody in here can make. We can glow with the same intensity. It's free, but let me tell you, it's not cheap. There's at least four price tags associated with this. Now, I, I, wait a minute. Before we go there, some of y'all might say, hang on, hang on, hang on. If Joseph, this Levite from Cyprus, is so influential, how come I've never heard of him before? I mean, hey, what about that? You know, that, that's something. Well, I think you probably have. You just know him by his nickname. You don't know him by his real name, most probably. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This guy's friends got together one day and nicknamed him. Listen, how many nicknames? Anybody have nicknames growing up? This is what I want you to do for just like some, some nicknames are not real kind, are they? My, my kid brother, one of them, uh, Timmy, uh, we nicknamed him Oxen. I don't know why we used the plural, but we did. We called him Oxen. He was a hairy little kid. You could like braid his back. He was as stubborn as they come. He was maybe like Oxen, multiple. He was just a, well, we called him Oxen. My other brother, his, his arms and legs, he just kind of grew in a disproportionate manner. Were like three times longer than they should have been. And so we, he looked like a granddaddy long leg spider. So we called him Spider. All right. Turn to the person next to you for just a second. I want you to tell them, come on, free, real confessions, let's go. Your nickname, growing up. Go for it. If you had a nickname, let's hear it. Go to your, go to tell the person next to you. (laughs) 
Okay, hopefully no X-rated nicknames were talked about. Uh, but uh, nicknames are an interesting thing. Now, let me ask you, if your best friends, your family members, those who know you best, got together and picked a nickname for you that reflects who you are, your values, your idiosyncrasies, what you're about, what would they, what would they say? Isn't that, that's telling, isn't it? And that tells you, first of all, all of who, what other people think you are, how they see you. Barnabas's friends, Joseph's friends, got together and called him son of encouragement. That's a, it's a very interesting nickname. Now, when we think of encouragement, we're thinking about, you know, hey, good job, you know, nice do, nice glasses, you look like you're out of GQ. You know, hey, good, you know, you, you did well the other day, you left it all on the field, no one could sing it better. Or um, hang in there, there's always a next year, everyone drops the ball sometimes. In, in regular encouragement, words or actions that inspire hope or confidence. But there's another form of encouragement. It's the kind that Joseph carried. It's much rarer. It's much rarer in the church. But it's much more powerful. It's biblical encouragement. And that is words and actions that inspire faith. That's Mrs. Conroy spiritual type people. That's folk just by being around them. You ever see these people? You ever know these people? Just by being around them, you walk away wanting to know Jesus. They haven't preached, they haven't said anything, but their, their aura, you know, just by being with them. You, they, everyone looks big on the outside, but you get closer to them, you start going, ah. But you get closer to this person, and you realize that they walk deeper than you could have ever imagined. And they really know Jesus. And your answers have not been all, your problems have not been all solved, but they've been put right back in the right perspective as you leave this person. This is biblical encouragement. And again, it's, it's the fuel that, that, that fuels our brightness intensity. And so as we look at, at this Joseph, this Levite from Cyprus, again, our goal is to see what he had. Can we have it? And again, you can if you're willing to pay the four price tags associated with this. First price tag is to be sold out. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, look with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to look through Acts a little bit this morning as we follow this guy's life. Acts chapter 1. First price tag is to be sold out. We're in verse 23. And let me give you the background of this. Twelve apostles, right? Twelve apostles. Uh, Judas betrays Jesus. He goes off and he hangs himself, commits suicide. He was sorrowful, but he was not repentant. That's another whole message. Feeling bad for sin and repentance. Two different things. Judas goes off, he kills himself. Twelve apostles minus one is eleven apostles. And they figure out, okay, we've got to replace him. Now, this was the first time, this was the only time that they would replace an apostle when he died. From this point on, every time an apostle vacated his office due to martyrdom, uh, they didn't replace him. And finally, when John died, the office of apostleship was done. But at this point, they're going to they're fill the shoes. And so they figure out, we've got two guys that they put in the running. Okay? And verse 23. So they proposed two men. Chapter 1. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Now, Gene Getz, New Testament scholar, proposes that this, and several reasons for this we're not going to get into, but this Joseph called Barsabbas is none other than our Joseph, the Levite from Cyprus. Matter of fact, Getz will say that the, one of the reasons why they nicknamed him Barnabas is because Barnabas in the Greek is a play on Barsabbas. Now, if that's true... This, this is very intriguing. Now, Matthias, we don't know a whole lot about Matthias. 
But we do know something about Joseph. He was a Levite. Now think for just a second, your Old Testament history. Who were the favored children in the Old Testament? The Levites. Who were the folk who ran the show? The Levites. Who were the spiritual leaders? The Levites. The only one who could touch the holy things. The Levites. The people who were the mediator between God and men. The Levites. The guys who had the law entrusted to them. Whose job was to study it and teach it. The Levites. They were the guys. And Joseph was one of them. And you would think that these fishermen, apostles, they would realize, man, we get a Levite on our team. And suddenly we're going to have a lot more credibility with the Jews, with the Pharisees. And this guy's, this guy's resume is looking pretty good. And so they figure out who's going to be, whether or not, uh, who should be the next apostle. Verse 24, it says, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was added to the 11 apostles. I called up uh, Debbie Forte in college. I uh, thought that Debbie Forte and I were, things were going well. Uh, I give her a call. Debbie, hi, this is, this is Mark. How you doing? Mark Harris. You know, that kind of thing. That's what was, was going to go. And so, so we're talking a little bit. Things are going and getting better. I said, hey, what you doing Friday night? I've got nothing going on Friday night, Mark. My schedule's wide open. This sounds like an invitation for an invitation, doesn't it? I think it's great, wonderful. So, hey, how about the new restaurant and Rush Street open? Let's, how about dinner? I'll take care. And we'll go for a walk. And all of a sudden, there's silence. And she says, well, I might be doing something Friday night. <laughs> Rejection. Have you been rejected before? Uh, you tried out for the team, you know you should have made it, you know you're better than some of those other guys, and yet the list comes out and your name's not on it. Or maybe you had a friend that you, commit, you, you were committed to, and yet they put the knife in your back. Betrayal, rejection. Or maybe the promotion at work had your name written all over it. You know it did, but it's not, so way, that's not the way the guys who does the hire, do the hiring look at it. Rejection. Or maybe there was a lover of some sort. And they chose somebody else over you. Rejection. How do you feel when you've been... I mean, how do you think he would have felt, Joseph would have felt? He was rejected. And look who rejected him. Isn't this interesting? Then they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias. He was rejected by God. Sovereign God who's over the, the throw of the dice. Rejected him. Well, how do you respond when you're rejected? God, you know I wanted this. I would have done everything. I, you know I would have been better than what's his face for crying out loud. I gave you everything after all I sacrificed. This was one thing that I wanted. How come you didn't come through for me? But I want to serve you. But I guess I'm not good enough for you. you know? I just hope you and Matthias are happy. Good, go, fine. Okay, listen, I'm taking my ball and leaving. I tried and I wanted to serve you and you wouldn't let me do it just so we understand each other. You know, it would kind of be funny if it wasn't true so often, right? Or maybe the uh, rejection like this. If you, you heard the, this kind of thing where it's, uh, well, I'm glad I didn't get in there. Those bozos. I mean, for crying out loud. They determine God's will by throwing dice for crying out loud. I mean, come on. Read. How about this? Check out my resume. Duh. I'm the more qualified person. Well, I'm, I bet they're just jealous over the fact that I'm a Levite and they are not. 
I don't want to join their circus anyway. Just let them go ahead and kind of do their little thing and feel good about I'm out of here. Now, how did Joseph respond to rejection, though? Chapter chapter four. Verse thirty six. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Poverty was just part of the landscape in the early church. You couldn't escape it. People, everybody went to bed hungry. It's just the way it was. And Christians who had means would often liquidate some of their assets to help the body. Uh, this Joseph, this Levite from Cyprus, had some means, and so he sold the field. Now, I'm wishing, thinking, hoping, maybe, if I was in his situation, I'd have done the same thing. Maybe. I may have sold some assets to help, help the poor. But here's what I would not have done. Look, what, I would not have brought the money to these guys, the folk who rejected me and allowed them to distribute it. Oh, no, no, no. See, I'm going to distribute it among the poor. See, I can do a better job. These guys determine God's will by throwing dice for crying out loud. I'm gonna, the poor folk are going to know that these apostles made a huge mistake by passing on me. I can figure out better who needs it than these, these lame brain apostles. They don't know. He brings the money to the apostles' feet, maybe even the feet of Matthias. Maybe Barnabas understands something that really is where this whole glowing in the dark thing has got to start. He, under, he understands that there's a sovereign God who really is sovereign. I mean, really is. We say that about everything else until something bad happens to us. No, he really is. And that, that his life is not in the hands of any, any group of people but in the hands of almighty, loving God. God was just protecting him. Barnabas was sold out, not to personal ambition and kingdom. Not to God, I'll serve you if, and as long as I'm comfortable and things are going my way, and I can have my, my, my say. But, but I, I, I'm submissive to you, almighty, sovereign God. He was sold out to the body of Christ at that point. That's where it is God to start, maybe there's something you're struggling with right now. That God could have, God should have, why didn't he? I don't know. And because of the questions that maybe God's not going to give you the answers for this side of heaven. Because, because those non-answers, you're pulling back. And the service is just not going to happen. And the intensity of the glowing is just going to shut down a little bit. Here's where it's got to start. You've got to be willing to pay the price of being sold out. Being sold out. For his body and his kingdom. Second price tag is you have to reach out. Look over chapter 9, Acts. You have to reach out. Again, let me give you the, the background on this one. The, the church's number one nemesis, number one arch enemy in its early, early stages was none other than a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul was to the early church what Japan was to Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. He was an excellent communicator. He was a, a, an incredible leader. And uh, Saul would, would rally the troops and say, people, Jews, listen to me. There is a cult that has hijacked our faith. It's saying that this, this illegitimately born carpenter is your Messiah, is the sovereign God. They are blaspheming us. They are stealing the minds of your children. It's in the best interest of, of our nation to annihilate them. And all the people were like, ah, 
you know, let's, let's get them. And so Saul is on his way to Damascus and he's got official papers to put these guys in jail who claim to be Christians, Christ followers or worse. And at that point, uh, bright light from heaven comes on him. And my, to my understanding, this is the only time that the resurrected, ascended Jesus would come back to earth other than his final, final return. But he comes at this point and he talks, he says, hey, Saul, and Saul, he's gone like, who are you? He says, well, uh, remember that illegitimately born carpenter person that, that those guys were claiming was the Messiah and the sovereign God? Well, that was me and I am. And Saul realizes, ah, I've been wrong. And he does a 180. I mean, he, he, he changes uniforms and he, he goes, for, if you know Saul, he did everything 110%. Man, so, okay, he's going this route. Well, well, he gets to Jerusalem and he figures I should probably hook up with the apostles. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? Verse 26 of chapter 9. When he came to Jerusalem, he, was, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. No duh, right? Not believing that he really was a disciple. This is a trick. It's a trick. If Saul can knock out the leadership, of course he's going to wipe out the church. That's his goal. That's his reputation. It's a trick. And so they, they reject him. They run away from him. And you know what? Even if his conversion was legitimate, I'm not so sure he's going to mix real well with these fishermen. First of all, Saul was responsible for the death and imprisonment of some of their, their dear friends, maybe some of their family members. That'd be hard to have that guy on your team, wouldn't it? On top of that, you've got these fishermen over here. They're all blue collar, but you've got Paul who's blue blood. And Paul went to Harvard, and Paul drives a BMW chariot, and Paul wears design of togas, and, and, and Paul has imported leather sandals. And, and these guys over here, they can, he's speaking too, too many big words. They can't understand him. And on top of that, Paul is a double A personality steamroller guy, get with me or get out of the way type of person. And these docile fishermen are going... He is not going to work with us at all. And so they reject him. They shut him down. However, verse 27, but Barnabas took him. Now, you wonder, how did Barnabas know this wasn't a trick? He didn't. Maybe this was going to be a trick. And if it was, what what would it cost Barnabas? Well, he's looking at prison for the rest of his life or worse. But he took him. And brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas had sat down with Saul for some time and said, tell me your story. Shared with him. He he, he reached out to him. Now this is is something for folk who are going to glow with an intensity. Who are going to reach out. See, if you think about the things that cause us to not reach out. Physical appearance. Uh, personality, they're a little bit obnoxious, they're a little bit loud, they're a little bit intimidating. But somebody who's glowing thinks those things and sees those things as purely costume. The education and the jaguar and the blue hair and the, and the piercings and the three-piece suit and the, the, the titles, it's all costume. It's externals. And someone who's glowing, instead, they look at the heart and they say, I wonder what would happen if God got a hold of this person. I wonder what God could do to this person. That's the question they ask. When I was in uh, junior high, again, church of 70 people. So wasn't it, that, that's on a good day. That's when the nursery and everything. Um, the senior hires all sat in one, one row. I was the lowly junior hire. And of course, I, I wasn't even on the totem pole anywhere. I mean, it was, the pecking order was, was such. 
But sometimes they would ask me to sit with them. Don't know why, but on occasion, especially Tom and Pat. See, Tom and Pat were like the big guys in our youth group. And so they would ask me. I don't know. Again, I'm not sure why, but okay. Sometimes after church on Sunday night, they would ask me to go with them out for pizza. I'm, again, I'm not sure. I just remember sitting at the tables with all these big high school guys uh, out for pizza with them. Then when they went on, Pat and Tom went on to, to college, they went to Bible college. I remember one day I got a letter in the mail with a plane ticket in it. They, they invited me to come out to their school just for a week, and they were at a Bible college. They just reached out to me. Don't know why. Uh, Dan Webster, I'm not sure if you, if you know the name. Dan Webster said that when he was in high school, very pagan family, he was he's a very tall guy, he was the starter on their, their school's basketball team center. Uh, good team. Party, party monger, just huge party guy. But his senior year, he had all the popularity and everything. He started thinking, hearing about God and wondering about God himself. No one really told him about it. And so he heard this youth group. So he thought, I'm going to check it out. So on his own, he goes to this youth group. And while the guy is speaking, Webster interjects a question. He didn't realize that that's not the way you're supposed to do it. But he interjects a question, and the freshman girls start laughing at him. <laughs> well, he shuts him down. He says, as soon as this guy says we're done, I am out of here. Forget it. I get more respect from, from the guys on the team. The other party people respect. I'm out of here. I'm just out of here. And so as soon as the guy said amen, he shot to the elevators. He was getting ready to, to split. And a couple of guys went to him, went up to him. From, they said, hey, Dan, you don't know us, but, but we know you. You're in our school and good game Friday night. And listen, those, those girls, freshman girls, you know, they're, they're, you know freshman girls, pay no attention. Hey, how about we show you our facility and what, where we're at? And so they reached out to somebody who would be very intimidating to them. And, and Dan Webster came back the next week. And then again, and then again, he ultimately came to give his life to Jesus went home, shared, shared Christ with his family. His mom and dad gave their life to, to Jesus. His siblings gave. He ended up becoming the youth pastor at one of the largest churches on the West Coast. He then moved, became one of the, one of the, the youth pastor at one of the largest churches in the Midwest, uh, where they would, on their outreach nights, have like 2,000 high school students. From a distance, when I was a youth pastor, Dan Webster was, he was the reason why I stayed in ministry. He, he fed me and he mentored me from a distance. And you wonder, if those, if those folk hadn't reached out to him, those two guys, to this intimidating person, what might the church have lost? And you wonder, does God ever bring us, on some Sunday morning maybe, a Dan Webster type person, walks through the doors, party animal maybe, whatever else, and then he turns around and leaves with nobody reaching out to him? Wouldn't that be horrific, y'all? Man, we can't let, let that be said here. It's hard to reach out. But those who glow in the dark, gulp. They swallow hard. They walk up to somebody. If you see somebody who looks new, we don't want to intimidate. But, but to say, hey, thanks for coming. My name is whatever. Hey, can I show you around? Hey, good deal. Maybe we'll see you again. Do you have any questions? That's it. But to continually let the person, if they don't come back, okay. But let's not have them not come back because we weren't friendly. Because we didn't care. Those who glow in the dark reach out outside their comfort zone. They reach out of that to other people. They're sold out for Christ. They reach out. A third thing that, third price, that if you're going to glow with an intensity, you have to pay is the price of pouring out. 
of, of pouring out. Verse 28, we're still in chapter 9. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. These guys, the apostles, were realizing that Paul on your team was just about as dangerous as Paul against you, you know? Because Paul, if you think about it, he'd been over here. And he was their Goliath. He was their champion. He was their secret weapon. But then he changed uniforms and he went to the other team. And he was taking all of his leadership and all of his oratory skill for the other side. And so these guys are getting bent out of shape. And so they put a contract out on him. Now, if you know anything about having, having a contract out on you, when a hitman is, is, is after somebody, if you're next to him, you could be in trouble too. And so Paul's walking along all the apostles and it's just getting hot for him. And they're saying, you know what? Let's get rid of this guy for a while. So they, they, they wanted to send him off to Tarsus. Now, let's look. We've got a little map. If you can see it, I don't know if you can. Bottom right-hand corner. You can see Jerusalem. That's where they were hanging out. Caesarea, a little bit up to the, the left coast. They go up to Caesarea. They put them on a boat all the way to the top. Red, Tarsus. That's where they said, it's back to his hometown. Let's get him away from us for a while. Let things cool down. Now, as they send, they send Paul off. It's still Saul at this point. It's going to be called Paul. But they send him off. But now, keep, keep the map up for a second. Because you see this other little town off to your right, top corner, Antioch. Well, now, what had happened? This was a couple years later. At this point in church history, the church is predominantly in Jerusalem. Now, it had spread off from Pentecost. But all the leadership is still in Jerusalem. That's the headquarters. That's where the apostles are hanging out. The widespread persecution is not hitting in the diaspora. It hasn't taken off yet. And so these guys are still there. But they get news that up in Antioch, there's like a revival going on. And the leaders are saying, what is that all about? We better send somebody to figure this out, to find out what's going on. So in chapter 11, verse 23. It says, news of this, chapter 11, verse 23, this revival thing that's going on in Antioch, reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Let's send somebody to figure this out, see if it's legit. So they sent Barnabas, right? Which is kind of an interesting thing. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, I don't... He goes and checks it out. Yep, the revival's okay. You guys are good. Hang in there. Do a good job. Now, he's up in Tarsus. We got a little map back up. He's up in Antioch now, right? And I don't know if he sees a sign, Tarsus this way, 150 miles or what, but he says, Tarsus, Tarsus. Saul, we sent him to Tarsus. Oh, man, it's a couple years back. I wonder how he's doing. What's going on with this guy? I think I'll go check it out. He did this on his own. He was not commissioned to do this. This is not an easy walk. This is about a 150-mile walk from this guy over a mountain range. No Holiday Inn Expresses or McDonald's along the way. This is going to cost him. This is not a weekend trip. This is a week's trip to get there. But he goes on his own. A sacrifice. Sacrifice to himself. And, and look, look what it says. Look what he does. Verse 26 of chapter 11. When he found him... He brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. You ever wonder 
Who was it who discipled the Apostle Paul? Who was it who taught Paul all of that great stuff that he wrote in Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians? Who taught Paul the stuff of First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon and maybe Hebrews even? Barnabas discipled Paul. Now, Paul was an Old Testament scholar, so he got the Old Testament down. But someone had to help him connect the dots to Jesus, and that was Barnabas. Barnabas would sit down and say, yeah, I know you know all about the prophecies about the Messiah. Let me tell you how Jesus fulfills them. And Paul, you understand all about the temple and tabernacle. Let me tell you how they're a shadow of Jesus Christ. And you know all about the new covenant that's prophesied. Let me tell you how you get into it through Jesus. And all of the information that Paul outlined. Barnabas was never called to write inspired scripture, but he discipled the guy who was. He poured into he poured into, into Saul, soon to be called Paul. You, you, my pastor at that church of 70 people I grew up with, the pastor's name was Dan Norwood. You're not going to find any statues of Dan. He never wrote a book. But I would remember I would crash his office as a little kid. I'd bust through right up there at the church on my bike. I never remember him kicking me out of his office. But I'm telling you, as a pastor, you've got to guard your study time, right? Well, I bust up his on a regular basis. But he was cool with it. And he would sit me down and he would always bring, bring up the discussion of the Lord, bring me to the Lord. Dan would call me up and he would take me with him to the Pacific Garden Mission downtown Chicago. I remember he would call me up and bring me to the nursing homes on occasion when he would go. I remember when he sat me down when we were there, not, not, didn't give me any, any heads up. And he said, OK, Mark, today you're going to share your testimony. I'm like, wow, what? I, no, no, it's cool. Don't worry about it. These guys can't hear anyway. Not a big deal. Listen, say this and this and this. So I would get there uh, uh, and I would share some things. And he, he would come up and put his arm around me and said, oh, if Billy Graham was here, you'd have got saved twice. Man, that was great. Was now this, you need to change this. And this, again, a little heretical, but don't worry about it again. They can't hear it. Sorry. Don't just, just. And he would encourage me in that way. He poured into who, into who I was. Uh, Dan did. You know, I don't know why when I was at Moody, on occasion I would get a pink slip in my mailbox. Uh, Dean Lawfer wanted to see me. And I would go into Dean Sarah Lawfer's office. She's about 60 years old. I was a 19 year old RA wannabe. Why she would call me down and then pour me a cup of coffee and then pour leadership stuff into me and discipleship stuff into me. I didn't ask for it, but boy, I ate it up. Uh, Dean Lauper walked with the Lord in an amazing way. And she, she poured into me. Uh, those who glow. And this is probably one of the hardest ones. Because this is sacrifice. This is incorporating this person or people on my schedule, my time. Oh, that's our, our most incredible asset, isn't it? Pour out into people's lives. They invest in people's Let me ask you who you investing in these days fourth price tag is uh, to start out let me tell you what i mean by that to start out because if we stop and think most of us especially we've been down the road for a while we, we have some glory year memory man of some time when we really invested in somebody and some great ministry we were involved in we really poured out to somebody but you know that was a long time ago i mean it's been a long time we really stop and think about it since we've done that well, Barnabas did it with Paul, but he just kept going. He started again, and then again, and then again. He kept it rolling. Look over in chapter 15 of, of, of Acts. 
Saul, soon to be called Paul and Barnabas, go on the church's very first missions trip. They go up to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They plant some churches there. Now, what happened during that trip, though, there was a little bit of a, a problem because Barnabas wanted to bring this guy called John Mark with him. So Barnabas brings John Mark. Uh, John Mark gets cold feet halfway through the trip. I don't know what he's got to do the next. Maybe he's got to share his testimony the next day. Maybe he's in charge of the, the statistics. Maybe he sees all the persecution coming their way and decides, I've had it. I'm out of here. And so he, one night, he takes off. The next morning, Barnabas gets the note. He left, and Barnabas is discouraged. But Paul is outraged. Ah, this wishy-washy. I amount to nothing. I'm going to mess up our trip. So Paul's ticked off. Well, they do their missions trip. They go back to Jerusalem. And the scripture doesn't say this, but I believe we can infer it strongly that Barnabas makes a beeline for John Mark's house. And so for this next year, this is Barnabas' style, right? He pours into John Mark a year later. Verse 36, I believe. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Let's go back. Tour number two. Let's go back. Good plan. It's a good plan. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Barnabas is saying, listen, Paul, I know, I know he wasn't ready before, my bad, but he is now. I'm telling you, we've got to do this with this guy. He, he, he's, got, he's got something about him. God can use him. And I want to say to Paul, oh, Paul, how easily we forget. It wasn't too long down the road when these apostles were rejecting you. But Barnabas was saying, no, he was fighting for you. And, and look, look at the text here. Who was it that the apostles agreed with? Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyrus, Cy- Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers. The apostles agree with Paul. You're right, Paul, that John Mark's never going to mount anything. He's not going to do it. He's, Barnabas is wasting his time this time. John Mark would go on to write uh, our first gospel. The Gospel of Mark. Matter of fact, when, when Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels, their research led them to the book of Mark. And they both copied major portions of Mark into their Gospels. If it wasn't for Mark, we would know approximately two-thirds of what we know about Jesus. That's it. Uh, Paul writes 13, maybe 14 epistles explaining more than anybody else what the cross means for your life and my, my life today. If we wouldn't have had Paul, our lives today, our spirituality today, would be, would be much more shallow than what it is. Because Barnabas, this guy, we don't even know his first name, because he desired to glow. He was sold out. He didn't have time to waste his life on personal ambition. He reached out to those no one else would reach out to. He poured his life into those that others might consider a loser because they, he, knew, he knew that God could do great things. And he would do that over and over and over. True story. Uh, Tommy Stevenen loved school. Uh, third grade, he goes to school. Teacher says, okay, gives him chalk, says, go up to the board, write your name, Tommy. Tommy writes his name on the, on the board. Y M O T. Tommy. 
Well, of course, the class erupts. Ha, 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 ha. The teacher, okay, as kid's a clown. Good job. Funny. Ha, ha. Okay, write your name on there again. This time, do it right. Well, Tommy had no clue what he did wrong. So he wrote, writes his name again. Y-M-O-T. Tommy. Which, if you look at it backwards, it's his name. The kid's dyslexic. But, but the teacher doesn't catch it. And the teacher blows. Wow, that's what you want to be called. Looks like Yamat to me. You want to be called Yamat? Fine. Okay, class. He's no longer Tommy. He is Yamat. And for a full year, everybody calls him Yamat. Humiliation after humiliation. The end of the year, his parents get a letter from school. Official school letterhead. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Stevenin, you must understand that Yamat is severely mentally retarded and must not continue with school next year. Mr. and Mrs. Stevenin can't read, though. They know it's an important letter. It's on letterhead. Looks important, but they don't know what it says. So they kind of fold it up, put it in the drawer. Next year, Tommy heads back to school. No one didn't know he wasn't supposed to go. So he goes back to school thinking, oh, great, another year. He's in school, fourth grade. He sits down first day, in walks Mrs. Johnson. But Mrs. Johnson understands immediately what the issue is. She says, okay, class, his name is Tommy. Anyone who calls him Yamat is dealing with me. His name is Tommy. And she pulls him aside and she says, okay, Tommy, recess. Can you stay in recess? Because if you can get 51% of your words right, I promise you I'll pass you. He says, good deal. Let's do that. Okay, end of the semester, he's still failing miserably. So Mrs. Johnson says, okay, after school, can you give me an hour as well? And then I don't live very far from you. Saturday mornings, can you come by my house? About four hours, we will, we will work on this. And so they did regularly, consistently. And Tommy would bang his head on the table. Why can't I get this? Everyone else can get this. Why can't I? Well, at the end of that year, he had 51% of his words right. And so he was passed. Yay! He goes home and he has a good summer. He's getting ready to come back for school for his fifth grade year. But he realizes, man, if I have a teacher like Mrs. Johnson, I'm going to be okay. But if I have a teacher like I had the year before, I'm in all kinds of trouble. And he knows he's still very far behind. But that, that, you can imagine his surprise, that first day of school when he's in class, and who walks in but Mrs. Johnson, who taught in that school for 25 years, 24 of them were fourth grade, there was only one year she requested to teach fifth grade. And she said, okay, Tommy, here's the deal, same thing as last year, recess after school, Saturday mornings. He said, got it. By the end of that year, Tommy Stevenin was, was up with the rest of the students. When Tom received his Ph.D. in business, his dissertation was chosen in the specific area he wrote of all of the dissertations that year in the United States as the, the, the top one. And he went to New York for a celebration. His mom was there. Mrs. Johnson came. As he's getting ready to get on the plane to, to go back, his mom handed him a letter and said, here you go, Tom, you might find this uh, important. On his flight back, he remembers the letter, pulls it out. It's faded letter on school letterhead. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Stevenin, you must know that, that Yamat is severely mentally retarded and should not continue in school next year. When I had Dr. Tom Stevenin for my business class, he was an adjunct professor. His consulting firm had 200 consultants underneath him. Coke bottle glasses, big man, very gentle, very godly man because Mrs. Johnson was not just interested in teaching him how to read but taught him that he was created so very, very special and introduced him to his creator. That's somebody who poured out 
who reached out. Uh, let me ask you two questions. Would you look back over your life? Who was it who's poured into your life? If you were to say three people, make a mental note, three people who really, you're, they are the reason why you're here. They, because they were faithful to God, because they glowed, you are here. What names would be on that list, your list? Let me encourage you, encourage you sometime today. Can you get on the phone and call them just to say thank you? Just I know I've said it before or I haven't said it. It's been a long time. I just want you to know thank you. God used you to change me. Second question. While the Christians in the world were doing this, would your name end up on anybody's list? Whose list would have your name on it? Folk who glow, who recognize this is my job in life. They are so up to Christ and his, his, his kingdom, not my ambitions. They reach out, they pour out, and then they do this over and over again. Would you pray with me?